verses 6 to 11. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So when they, as the disciples and Jesus, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray not to a dead God. We do not pray to a Lord who has remained buried in the ground, but we pray to a King who is risen. We pray to a Lord who is exalted, We pray to a Savior who continues to reign even to this day. And Lord, we pray that you might help us this morning. We need divine assistance. Lord, I need divine assistance. These words don't matter unless they are salted by the Holy Spirit. And these words do not matter if they are not received through the Spirit. So by your Spirit, would you help us this morning as we consider what this passage says to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, and in that passage we saw that Jesus has spent 40 days continuing to appear to his disciples, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. And we can, I think, safely assume that in that conversation, Jesus would have explained to them things concerning the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom, preparing them for the work of the kingdom that they were about to witness and see and become a part of. And he commanded them to wait until the coming of the Spirit, pointing to the necessity of the Spirit for the work. Now, after spending 40 days with his disciples and and speaking to them concerning these things, there was one thing left, one thing more that Jesus wanted to impart unto his disciples. And at this point, after 40 days of instruction, the disciples are still not getting certain things based on the question that they direct toward Jesus. And Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but he seems to direct their attention elsewhere. He says that they are to be his witnesses. 
Now, in the Scriptures, a witness is someone who helps to establish facts objectively through verifiable observation. And this becomes important later on in chapter 1 when the apostles are looking for a replacement for Judas who betrayed Jesus and took his own life. That whoever was going to replace Judas needed to be someone who had witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So as the apostles were about to be sent out as witnesses of Jesus Christ, one thing was left, and that is for them to witness the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we're seeing that the ascension of Christ and its being witnessed by the apostles is vital for ministry and for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is the ascension of Jesus Christ that we're going to consider this morning. Beginning with, firstly, what is the ascension? What is the ascension of Jesus Christ? Well, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the confirmation of Christ's identity. It is intended to prove that Jesus, in fact, is who he says he is, that is, the Son of Man, the Son of God, who's come down from heaven to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And how exactly does the ascension prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Well, the passage here says, again in verse 9, as they were looking at Jesus, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, doing just a simple word study on the word cloud, you see that there's a close connection between cloud and God, specifically in the Old Testament. In numerous places, we see this strong connection. So, for example, after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and they trekked through the wilderness, it tells us in the scriptures that God led the people of Israel through the wilderness by night through a pillar of fire, and during the day, it was a cloud. And then later on, when they settled at the, at, at Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai, that the, it tells us in the book of Exodus that the, a cloud covered the mountain and that Moses would ascend the mountain and go into the clouds and there he met with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Which, by the way, there might be, might be a connection here as well in Acts with Jesus being with his apostles for 40 days and the very presence of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate. Exodus 33.9, it tells us when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. So at this tent, it became a meeting place between God and Moses when the pillar of cloud would descend upon the tent. 1 Kings 8.9, when the priests were ministering in the tabernacle. It says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, the commandments, that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud, or because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
So here we have in the most holy place, and it says, A cloud descended upon the house of the Lord, and that the glory of the Lord filled it. Which is understood to mean that this is where the presence of God was. And in numerous places in the Old Testament, it tells us that God would cover himself with clouds. And then we see this transition, or this then application of cloud covering God, and then applied to the Son of Man. In Daniel 7.13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And there's several places in the Gospels where Jesus is actually referencing this very passage and applying it to himself, him being the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. In Mark 9, 7, when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured before them or glorified before them, it says there that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And here we have in the book of Acts, the disciples witnessing Jesus ascended into heaven, being taken up by a cloud. It's not just like coming under his feet and picking him up, but the idea here is that the cloud actually covered Jesus and took him up. And I think the NIV has it right there when it says that the cloud hid Jesus or hid him. And so all this is intended to show one last time to the disciples, to prove to the disciples one more time that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man, that he is God the Son incarnate. So the ascension is intended to show that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. What is the ascension? Secondly, the ascension is Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God at the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here we see that after making purification for sins, after Jesus' work on the cross, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ's resurrection testifies to us that God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that he accepted it on behalf of sinners. And Christ's exaltation testifies to us the reality that Jesus Christ has completed the work and is now seated at the right hand of God on his throne a throne that is a universal throne, a throne that stands above all other earthly thrones and heavenly thrones. A Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, points to Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It tells us about how the nations rage and seek to untether themselves from the lordship of Jesus Christ. But there it says that God will give unto his Son the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. Therefore the kings of the earth should kiss the Son or reconcile with the Son. 
lest they perish in the way. As we continue through the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that Christ's ascension is not the cessation of his work, but the continuation of his work, but from a different place, namely from heaven. And that even as Christ is seated on the throne, that he continues his work as Lord and King over all things, which that means that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether we're eating, whether we're sleeping, whether we're working, whether we're here or out there, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, Jesus Christ continues his work as King from his throne in heaven at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus did ascend unto heaven shows that his work is done and that all authority has been given unto him. He is told that his, all of his enemies will one day be made his footstool. When we pray on Sunday mornings, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that the king of kings would come one day and establish his reign upon the earth. Your throne is in heaven. We understand this. We know this. We believe it. But we're praying for the day that your throne would come down and be on this earth for you to establish your reign, your kingship over all the earth and letting your will be done. Thirdly, what is that? ascension of Christ mean? It means the finality of Christ's work. It means that he is seated at the right hand of God, he is exalted, and it also means that he completed his work, as I said earlier. It gives us the confident assurance that there is nothing more for Jesus to do on the earth. His work is completed. Otherwise, if Jesus had remained with his apostles, continued throughout the, earth, uh, the church age, if he had continued even to this very day, as much as we would like, we would not be so confident in knowing that his work is actually completed. But his physical absence is intended to give us that assurance that there's nothing more for Christ to do on behalf of sinners and their redemption. It also gives us the assurance that there's nothing for us to do in this redemption that Christ has purchased for us even though we might wish to see him and touch his nail-pierced hands, to speak with him face to face, to embrace him or to be embraced by him as our Savior, that we are not yet able to do any of these things shouldn't fill us with any sorrow, but instead with a confidence and an assurance that the absence of Jesus' physical presence a perpetual reminder to us that Jesus has, in fact, completed his work on our behalf. Redemption is done. His people are secured. So the ascension of Jesus Christ points to the finality of his work. It is done. Now lastly, one more thing as it relates to this point. It's a concern. The disciples, still not understanding some things, they ask a question. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So here we see they're still considering sort of the earthly matters. They're still wondering what will happen to Israel, what will happen 
to this nation will be restored. And Jesus directs our attention elsewhere. And in a way, he's saying it's a concern, but it's not really a concern for you to be concerned about at this moment. This is the Father's concern. What will happen in the future, God will dictate, God will determine. There are other matters for you to be concerned with. And let this be a lesson for us as well. We can certainly busy ourselves with many things, even many good things. But let us make sure that we concern ourselves with the things that Christ, that the Lord has entrusted to us. Let us not be like Martha when Jesus came to visit Mary and Martha. Right? She busied herself with preparing the house and preparing meals and all these things, which were all very good things. But she did not concern herself with the most important thing, and that is with meeting with Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from the Lord. Have you met with Jesus lately? Have you been meeting with Jesus lately? Personally, devotionally? We certainly have our to-do lists that have to get done. There's some of the things that we really don't want to get done, the challenging tasks, but we know they have to be done. And sometimes we'll busy ourselves, distract ourselves, do other things in order to avoid doing the one thing that we know we need to do, but don't really want to do. It's easy for us to neglect a lot of things that we are called to do, that we are responsible, whether it's family, whether it's ministry, whether it is our work, whether it's a particular task that the Lord has called you to. Sometimes we might be afraid. We might find those things challenging. But let this be a reminder to you this morning to not neglect the things that the Lord is calling you to be concerned with. And it first starts by meeting with Christ, drawing near to the Lord personally in your own time, and then from there, thinking meditatively, reflectively, what are the things in my life right now that the Lord has called me to, and am I, am I being responsible in those things? Am I doing what the Lord has called me to do? Am I concerning myself with meeting with Christ? Am I concerning myself with living unto His glory? Am I concerning myself with praying unto the Lord, praying for the lost, praying for those opportunities to proclaim the gospel to those who have yet to believe in Christ. Secondly, why is the ascension of Jesus Christ important? And to this, we can answer in the same way that we just answered to the question, what is the ascension? But this generates different, quite different answers. Why is the ascension important? First, it marks Jesus' return to the Father. John 16, 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. Consider, consider the reunion of a soldier and his family, a soldier who's been gone off into a different country, warring and fighting, longing for his family. 
There's still some correspondence here and there, but it's infrequent because of the, the vast distance. There might be some phone calls here and there when there's an opportunity that the signal is right. right. But it doesn't replace being with his family. And then when the time comes, after the better part of a year, the soldier returns home, disembarks the plane, and there at the airport is his loving family, his wife and his children, eager to embrace him, to love him, show their affection towards him. What a sweet reunion. And as sweet as that reunion is, there is no sweeter reunion than Jesus Christ in reuniting with the Father. The ascension of Christ marks Jesus' return to the Father. And why does that matter to us? It matters to us because Jesus' homecoming to the Father prepares the way for our homecoming to the Father. Jesus says that He is the way the truth and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through Him. If anybody is to be united to the Heavenly Father, it is because Jesus has made the way. Not only has He made the way, but He's guaranteed the way for those who have been united to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have this lasting and permanent union with Jesus Christ that is forever with us, no matter where we are, no matter what things we go through in this life. But that permanent union is what guarantees that we will one day be united with Christ and with the Father in heaven because Jesus Christ has been reunited with the Father. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That is, if we have been united with Christ in His death there on the cross by our faith in Him, and that means that by our faith in Him, just as Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, we too will one day experience that resurrection and be united to the Father. Praise be to the Lord. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ important? Secondly, because of the sending of the Spirit. John sixteen seven, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Quite a remarkable statement that Jesus makes there. Right? Better than me actually being with you to the very end of the age is actually more advantageous that I leave. Because only then will the Spirit, my Spirit, the Spirit of God come into you. And it is the Spirit of Christ that empowers people for ministry and empowers people for the gospel proclamation. Luke 24, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
but they are to wait until the Spirit clothes them with power before they go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, before they go on witnessing to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It is this Spirit that empowers us for kingdom living and kingdom proclamation. It is the Spirit that empowers us for these things. In Luke 4, even for Jesus Christ and His ministry, in Luke 4, after Jesus had endured the temptations in the wilderness, it tells us that He then returned in the power of the Spirit and then went immediately to begin to teach in the synagogues. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles, after reuniting with the church and praying for boldness, and they received the boldness, it tells us that they went on to continue to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with power. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says in the very first chapter, the very beginning, that he is convinced of the believers' genuine faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that these individuals, that these Christians have truly been born again because of the Spirit's power in their lives, seen in how they received the Word of God even under affliction. In other words, affliction... Suffering, tribulations in this world can, can sort of impede people from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, I am convinced of, your, of the genuineness of your faith because even under such dire affliction, you received the word which came to you in power. What we see then is that in the New Testament, there's this close connection between gospel proclamation and the Spirit's power. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel proclamation is empowered by the Spirit in bringing people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the Spirit's power, our words could never penetrate through the gatekeepers of the, of the, of the minds and hearts of men whether those gatekeepers are pride or unbelief or sin or selfishness or trials and tribulations and suffering. The Spirit is like David to the Goliath of every gatekeeper of, every, of the hearts and minds of men that keep them from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is advantageous that Christ Jesus leaves ascends and is exalted so that the Spirit then comes so that through our witnessing and proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our words can matter because not the power is not in us, but because the Spirit empowers our words. Thirdly, the reason why their ascension is important is because it completes the gospel proclamation. Again, in verse 11, the angels tell the apostles, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The gospel proclamation includes the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also includes the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the ascension of Jesus Christ also points to his imminent return. 
And it is this that completes the gospel proclamation. We proclaim the gospel because we believe in a risen and living Savior who will one day return. And aside from sin and judgment and dealing with these things and how Jesus will one day certainly deal with these things, we proclaim the gospel because we know Jesus will return for these reasons and others. And so we pray that the Lord hasten the day of his return. And while doing so, we should also hasten to proclaim the gospel as often as we can, as often as opportunities present themselves. So let us pray for opportunities and seek for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. This is part of our mission. This is part of what concerns us as a church to proclaim the gospel, to see the lost saved and come to believe in Jesus Christ, to concern ourselves with praying fervently, praying for those loved ones that you know that you are eager, desirous of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for those friends that you want them to know the Lord Jesus, praying for those neighbors or co-workers that you desire for them to see the Lord Jesus through the gospel of, of Christ and give their lives to Him. It is the ascension of Jesus Christ that points to his imminent return and that compels us to proclaim the gospel. And by the way, that also is, should encourage us to seek for ways to spread the gospel more broadly. So beyond our circles and praying for the Lord's wisdom to help us to understand, to know how exactly do we engage in evangelism, but also praying how can we also more effectively spread the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. Well, that is why we support and pray for missionaries like Ina, or even the Krugnalis as they serve in Africa and minister to people. As we look forward to later on, Lord willing, at the end of this year, sending our sister Reshma to Abu Dhabi. And we go and we proclaim and we help and we support. Right, anybody ready to go to Abu Dhabi sometime in the next couple of years to encourage our sister? We look for these ways to continue to proclaim the gospel because we know that Jesus Christ will one day return. And we don't know when. And these angels... And there's two of them, perhaps keeping with the theme of witnessing, two angels witnessing to this reality of Jesus' ascension and proclaiming that Christ will return. They're telling us that Christ will certainly return. And in this way, we have this ground of assurance of the proclamation of these angels that Christ Jesus will return. And while the ascension of Jesus Christ points, also, points to his exaltation, but it also points to his return, Thirdly, let us consider the ground of Christ's return. Right? These angels say that Christ will return, but what other ground in Scripture do we have that Christ Jesus will, in fact, one day return? Firstly, Christ's desire in the Gospel of John. I've said this before, you probably remember that I find one of the most comforting passages in all the Bible is in Gospel of John where Jesus prays for his disciples. And in that very passage, 
is where we see this, where we have this ground of assurance of Jesus' imminent return. Jesus, considering his people, prays unto the Father and says, Father, I desire those whom you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. And in that prayer, we see Christ's heart for his people. We see his affection towards his people, his longing for his people. And it's hard to imagine that Jesus is any happier than he already is right now. He's been reunited with the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He's been given dominion over all things. He's, there to re- he's at the place where he once was, at the side of the Father, enjoying fellowship with the Father. And yet there's something more that will increase his joy. When I was young, younger, I'm still young, I think, um, and my parents, my, 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 brother, my, my brother and I, my parents, when we moved to the States, uh, my father came first. We stayed in the Dominican Republic, and my dad came to secure a job, figure out housing, figure out where we're all going to live, how things will look like. And as a better part of a year, after things were finally situated, then my brother and I and my mom were able to come after things had been prepared. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that he's preparing a place for his people. And what would give joy, even greater joy to Jesus than what he already has right now? It is to have his people there with him, to behold his glory, to enjoy his glory to see him where he is. And in this way, we have this assurance that Christ Jesus will, in fact, return for his people because he is making sure that a place is prepared for his people and he longs for his people to be there with him and he's going to make sure that they get there to be there with him and enjoy his glory with him. Praise the Lord that we have a God who has plenty upon plenty room in heaven, and he invites sinners to come, to come and secure your place in heaven with him by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, and this is what we proclaim. Secure your spot in heaven by believing in Jesus, trusting in him as your Savior, giving your life to follow him. The affections of Christ do not get weaker and do not diminish as more people are brought in, but in fact, his heart only widens and broadens as more people come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this assurance that his affection, his love will never run out, but only increases as he continues to make room for people in heaven And he has made room for you. And he's longing for you to be there. Secondly, what other ground do we have of Christ's return? Well, we have Christ's love for his bride. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here we see Christ's deep love for his church. He loves his church. He died for his bride. He desires to sanctify her, to wash her with the water of the word so that he may one day present the bride to himself in splendor, glorious, beautifully. And in this way, we have this assurance that Christ Jesus will, in fact, one day return for his people. I mean, what kind of a man and groom would Jesus be if he left his bride waiting at the altar? What would this say about him? What would that say about his covenant? He'd be breaking his covenant. He'd be breaking his promises. But that is not the kind of Savior we believe in. He's not that person. We have this assurance that Christ will never ever say, you know what, I've changed my mind. You know what, I have too much, I have plenty of joy here in heaven by the Father's side. I don't need you here. We have this assurance that Christ will never ever say that. Because Christ Jesus loved his church, his bride, even to the point of dying for her. Thirdly, there's Christ's justice. Jesus is given the authority to execute judgment. And so that justice demands that Jesus return one day. And the Bible tells us that he will render to each one according to his works. In the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven is likened to this great separation where on the right hand will be the righteous who are so by faith. They will be rewarded. But they're continuing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ even to the end of their lives. And then on the other side will be those who have not believed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And will have to pay the penalty for their sins. Jesus is many things. Jesus is Certainly our great Savior, he's our King, he's our Lord, he's our elder brother, he's the one who loves us to the very end. But with his justice, Jesus can also be likened to this great debt collector. And like when it comes to these debt collectors, right, no matter where you go, no matter if you change your numbers, somehow they find a way to know exactly where you are. And so you get the letter, you'll get the phone call, and you'll be surprised, like, how in the world did they find me? Jesus is like this great debt collector who will make sure that those who have yet to have their, their debt of sin paid for by Christ, that they will pay themselves. There's no escape. There's no running away. You cannot go far enough away to escape the debt. Christ Jesus will find you out. If you haven't had your sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So this justice demands that Jesus Christ does will in fact return. And fourth and lastly, we have this assurance that Christ Jesus will return because of Christ's death for us. Romans five six says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Even while you were still in your sin, while I was still in my sin, Christ died for us. Christ came into the world, condescended 
to us, became like unto us, lived like one of us, and even went so far as to die for us. Given all that he had suffered on our behalf, how can we not expect that after suffering for us, that he would then return one day for us and end all our suffering in this world? Will the ascended Jesus suffer his people to endure endlessly in trials and tribulations? Certainly not. Will the ascended Jesus suffer his redeemed to continue to be harassed by the sin of their flesh? Absolutely not. Will the ascended Jesus, who spilled his own blood for the sake of all those who put their lives in his hand, leave and abandon his precious people here on this earth while he enjoys the glories of heaven? Certainly not. Christ's death gives us this assurance that he will one day return. He made a down payment, not in, not in, in money, not in any material thing, not in... T- prized gems. No, he gave the down payment of his life. To give us this assurance that he made such a sacrifice, then he will certainly return for his people. And for the time being, we wait eagerly. But we haven't been left as orphans. But Christ Jesus has given to us that which is most precious to him. He's committed unto us his dearest friend, and that is his spirit. Ephesians tells us that that the spirit of Christ is the seal of our adoption. The down payment has been made. The work has been finished. All that awaits now is for our adoption to be realized we are finally united with Christ and with God. And to encourage us as we wait eagerly, he's given us this friend who is a spirit, who is our helper, our comforter, the one who empowers us to share the gospel, who empowers us to live to the glory of Christ. And he is there to assure us each and every day that Jesus Christ will, in fact, return for you. So as we wait, let us live for his name. Let us live in Christ. And let us proclaim Christ. Until either we see him face to face and he comes for us, or we are brought up to see him there in heaven, to enjoy his glory. And rejoice in his exaltation.